Hello and welcome to World Canvas from the University of Iowa and from international programs. We're broadcasting tonight from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the campus of the University of Iowa. And this is the first program in this year's season of World Canvas. Our topic tonight is the arts as vocabulary. And we have a wonderful group of guests that we'll welcome in just a moment here. Uh, I would like to take a moment, though, to thank our partners, uh, not only international programs, but also the Pentacrest Museums, KRUI Radio, and the Hawkeye Network. On tonight's program, we'll be exploring ways in which the arts, both the performing and the creative arts, provide a vocabulary for self-expression and communication across barriers of all kinds. Our particular focus is the arts and human rights tonight. And I'm pleased to say that these folks on the left have uh, put together an initiative that I think uh, will be very interesting for anyone who has a chance to come see performing arts here on the campus of the University of Iowa in this uh, upcoming year. Uh, joining me on stage are Alan McVeigh, just to my left. Hi, Alan. Uh, he is the director of the UI Division of Performing Arts. John Manning is next to Alan. Hi, John. Thank you. John is an associate professor in the University of Iowa School of Music. And on the far end, we have Kelsey Kramer, who is a graduate student in the School of Music. And she's also a representative of the University of Iowa Center for Human Rights. So thank you for coming, Kelsey. Um, this is a big topic, as we can all imagine. And what I'd like to really investigate throughout the four parts of this series is how the arts help us see things we haven't seen or understand things we haven't understood or maybe haven't really wanted to get too close to. Um, how is it that art holds the power to challenge accepted beliefs and maybe even effect change? Um, so we'll be trying to answer some of those questions throughout this uh, full series. But I'd like to start with you, Alan, if I may, to just ask you how the arts got started here at the University of Iowa. Well, it's a good question. Uh, if you think back 100 years or so, the arts were barely present anywhere in American education or really world education. They were present as history or dramatic literature, or perhaps study of music uh, academically. But they didn't exist. And you, you sort of ask yourself, why not? Uh, they were obviously important. And it's hard to know exactly why not, except that changing an institution like a university is a little like trying to guide a battleship. It just takes a long time. People know what they know, and they're not sure about other things. And I think the arts are sometimes uh, they're mysterious. Uh, they don't have clear outcomes necessarily. Uh, they are meant to ask questions rather than give answers. Um, and they're not the forte of the people who were in the universities at that time. So Iowa, like most places at that time, had uh, some arts, but they weren't in the curriculum. Uh, for example, in theater, there were uh, clubs, and quite a number of clubs, seven or eight clubs that did plays and musicals and sketches and that sort of thing. Uh, in music, there were what they called affiliated lessons, uh, where the university didn't collect tuition, but rather the money went directly to people who offered uh, instruments or even voice, but they weren't for credit. Uh, in art, there was an odd thing uh, where, where people were asked to, I think, do a little hand drawing as a part of a course, but that was, that was about it. Uh, and in writing, uh, there was no creative writing at that time. Now, part of my what I want to say here is that institutions, uh, like political institutions, are made and changed by people. It seems like, well, the University of Iowa has developed such and such a thing, and, and it has. And you have to give credit to the whole institution for that. But the fact is that there are individual people who brought these things about. And one of the first ones here was a, was a dean of the graduate college named Carl Seashore. And he believed that writing 
was an important thing for people to learn, and not just writing a little poem, which is what some of them were doing. And so he not only brought uh, in that into the curriculum, he actually uh, made it a degree-granting program, which was one of the very first degree-granting programs uh, in the arts anywhere in the world. Meanwhile, in theater, uh, they hired a man named E.C. Maybe, and Mr. Maybe came, and his, his job was to do something with these seven clubs and to teach speech. Speech was understood to be an important thing to do. So, but he, after one year here, he said, this is not it at all. We're going to make a, a, a department. We're going to make a department of speech and of drama. And he did. He pulled those clubs together. He made some classes. And he started what became an amazing department that at one time included speech, theater, radio, film, eventually television, communication studies, communication disorders. All those were in one place. Not only that, he, he branched out and created uh, nationally uh, what became American, uh, what is it, theater institution, I forgot exactly what it is, uh, worked with the federal theater. So he was an amazing man. Meanwhile, in music, uh, they hired P.G. Uh, Clapp, and he came in and he stuck, started with eight people, and now it's 58 people, <laughs> in a little building that had a few rooms, and he, he did, he built up a, a department. Um, in uh, art, and Ab and others know more about this than I do, but they had a man named Charles Cumming who came in and then began to bring professional artists, uh, active artists here to campus, including Grant Wood, and he uh, created what eventually became the School of Art and Art History, one of the very first institutions that pulled together art and art history. And in creative writing, Mr. Seashore started it, and of course, uh, uh, Mr. Engel uh, created the world's uh, greatest uh, creative writing program ever. Mm -hmm. These things didn't happen quickly, they didn't happen easily, but people joined in, they supported them, and it came to be. To, be. And yes. to end this little history lesson, uh, the 2008 flood uh, damaged uh, so many buildings and these departments, and the university didn't have to say what it said. They could have said, uh, will we rebuild these things in a much more modest way? Because in fact, the buildings, though, were getting a lot of money from FEMA, there's not nearly enough money from FEMA to, to do what we need to do. And so uh, President Mason uh, and the, the, the provost at the time and the, everybody since then has committed themselves to something pretty astonishing, which is not only to rebuild the arts, but to make them really better than ever. It's a, it was quite a journey and one that I'm very proud to be a part of. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm so happy that you could give us a little walkthrough because yeah. this has been an amazing century of... Yes, yes. Uh, of arts involvement here on campus, and, and it leads us into what I want to ask you about specifically, John, because I know that you discussed with Alan um, this project called SOAR, Series on Arts and Rights, um, to see whether there was a way to discuss, I shouldn't say so much discuss, but to sort of present human rights um, questions or issues uh, to the public here during a, a year of performance in music and theater and dance and so on. Was there a way to do that with, uh, within the division? Um, so why was this something you wanted to do? Well, I was inspired by <clears throat> the uh, Center for Human Rights. And Kelsey had a lot to do with that. Um, there was a Martin Luther King Day of Service two years ago where I attended um, a seminar, a workshop, on human rights in the curriculum. Just out of curiosity and human interest, I had the day off. <laughs> so I went and um, I was fascinated, I was enthralled, I was inspired, but I kept thinking, 
but why am I here? Well, how can I use this? I'm, I'm a professor of music, and I'm a performer on tuba, and I, I play in a brass quintet. I thought, well, maybe there's a way we can use this as a theme for either a concert or a recording. Or eventually, I thought, maybe some kind of series, maybe a year-long theme um, that would kind of uh, go throughout some of the many performances that go on in the division. And uh, I suggested it to someone, and uh, Alan uh, has uh, a lot of inspiring uh, programs and vision for our division, and suggested that, uh, I originally suggested, well, how about the School of Music? How do how we do that? And immediately, Alan said, let's do this division-wide. And I was a little overwhelmed. But um, it's actually a, a pretty easy thing to translate, especially to theater arts and to dance, of course, to music, to embed some kind of message of human rights, awareness, um, there are so many artists, musicians, composers, choreographers who were affected by human rights, whether they had to live in exile, whether they had, um, were persecuted, whether they were imprisoned or exiled, uh, not to mention the thousands of works that chose as a subject, such as Slaughter City, uh, with a human rights theme that's explicit, and this is exactly what the lesson is supposed to be about. Mm -hmm. The difficult thing with music is that, unless it's program music, uh, or vocal music, it's hard to say, well, this piece is exactly about this. So one of the challenges I faced as an instrumental performer was trying to choose music that might have some kind of connection. And I think I have a few ideas, and several of my colleagues have some great ideas, and we're thrilled that each, each of the units in the division are doing something special, mm -hmm. and all sorts of new things are percolating to the surface, which I'm thrilled about. Yeah, that's great. Can you share one or two of those ideas you have for some of the music? Sure. Uh, Kitty Eberly uh, on our vocal department is doing a recital of patriotic and war songs very soon. Mark Heidel with the symphony band, uh, they're using, uh, they're programming one of the pieces in their symphony band concert, uh, and it's a tribute to Rosa Parks. Mm -hmm. It's a piece uh, by Mark Camphouse about Rosa Parks. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm probably more focused on the music side yeah. of things, yeah. but there's a faculty in, and um, graduate recital in February uh, by the dance department where there'll be themes of human rights. Hmm. So um, I just kind of dropped a seed and I wanted to see what would happen and these beautiful yeah. plants are coming out. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. And uh, Alan, when you spoke, spoke to your colleagues in uh, the other, the non-music areas of the division, uh, was there immediate, oh yeah, absolutely. There was, yes. Yeah. People thought it was a really good idea. It was John's idea entirely. I tried to set out there, what, what would we like to do yeah. next year as a division? And uh, he came up with this idea, and yeah. it, it was a good one from the get-go. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll get to Kelsey in just one sec, because I'm, I'm anxious to hear about the Center for Human Rights and your work there. But um, uh, in terms of the division itself or a university, what does human rights have to do with the division of performing arts? I mean, why, why, why should you take this on as a concept, if not cause? Well, what is art finally about at the, at the most fundamental level is the heart and the, you know, the, our spirit. And um, what is that all about? It's, I think, perhaps most about reaching out to other people. You know, when you have a, a great joy or a great sorrow, 
you share that, you need to share that with other people. And if you have a great love, it's only realized if you, if you reach. Yeah. And so I think when we create art, whether it's a painting or it's a, a piece of music, in the end, it's, it's about this. And when we see so many of our fellow human beings in such difficult straits, I think our heart, our spirit goes out and we want to reach. It's not true for every work of art, but I think it's true for a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, Kelsey Kramer, um, I'm particularly grateful to you for, for bringing this idea to me so that we could present such a program on World Canvas. And you have worked for quite a long time as a graduate assistant in the Center for Human Rights. And I know now you're a musicology graduate student. Um, tell me, please, why this is a project that has special meaning for you. Sure. Well, um, gosh, I've been working for the Center for Human Rights longer than I've been a grad student here. I started there um, as an AmeriCorps volunteer um, and then stayed on to oversee their certificate program in human rights, which is an undergraduate certificate program, um, and decided to pursue my degree in musicology. And so I sort of have two hats at the university, I guess. And um, so this project has been particularly meaningful to me because it lets me wear both at the same time. So um, it's been an interesting um, path to see them come together. But um, for me, it... Um, Let's me combine the two under this idea that there's some connection between beauty and justice. And so my work at the Center for Human Rights focuses so much on social justice. And um, I decided to pursue a degree in musicology because I love music, um, particularly sacred music. I love um, the beauty of it. I love the history of it. Um, but I also love this idea that it speaks to something um, very human and expresses something about the human spirit that um, that other, other things can't. I think that's true of the arts in general. And so I think for that reason, they're particularly relevant to a discussion of human rights um, in a very different way than what um, legal frameworks are relevant to human rights, but I think they're equally important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that you study sacred music. Mm -hmm. So is, is there some, some piece you might be able to bring forward for the audience that, that can uh, help explain what you see, the, how you see this connection between beauty and justice. Is there a particular piece or a particular composer that you think has made that connection with sacred music that we're trying to talk about? Oh gosh, I don't know if I could think of a particular piece. I think um, I think I notice it um, in, in what we think of when we think of beautiful music. We notice that there's balance and there's rightness. And that's not to say that um, that very dissonant music can't also say something about human rights, but um, for me, when I'm, I, it sounds really cheesy, but when I'm watching a movie and there's a beautifully written score that I know is, is messing with my emotions, there's a reason that that works for me. Um, and and I, think that that's, I think that that's important. But in the same way, I think that um, the dissonant music does express something about human rights and social justice as well. The fact that dissonance and something striking can make you um, question why does this strike me this way? Why is this wrong? And do I want to fix it? Or um, do I just want to acknowledge and, and share in whatever suffering that's mm -hmm. coming out of? Mm -hmm. 
Well, as I understand it, Article 26 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights says that uh, art should promote understanding, tolerance, and friendship among all nations, racial or religious groups. Um, does that ring true for you? I mean, is this, we're talking about human rights and we haven't really made an effort to explain what we think they are, and maybe the explanation is a little bit different for each of us, but the ability to freely express what you feel through music, through a theater piece, uh, through something that you write, a dance, um, is I guess what they're getting at here in this declaration, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it resonates uh, for the whole theme, and the artist's vocabulary um, is a great way to frame that, because um, the one thing that's universal worldwide, besides our humanity, is our emotion. Mm -hmm. And emotions are often tied to reactions to art. And we may not speak the same language, i.e. vocabulary, uh, but we do have the same feelings and reactions. And I, I think that speaks a lot to the universality of this human condition and how art reflects it. Yeah. Well, I think a little later in the segment, we are in this uh, program, we may have um, some discussion about this whole business where um, a, a massive event in world history, some cataclysmic, horrible thing that is too much really even for words, uh, can sometimes be brought to a level of understanding that an individual person can, you know, if you think of something like Sophie's Choice, such a terrible, uh, unimaginable um, situation, the Holocaust, but when, when you see one or two people's journeys through something so terrible, individuals can identify in a way that is sometimes hard to do, I think, through political discussion or through um, reading dense texts. Sometimes it's a song or it's a moment uh, on screen, or it's an uttered phrase on, on the stage. And you're all artists. This is a, probably part of what's brought you into the fields you're, you're in today. Um, have you ever put together a dramatic work that, uh, does something come to mind now, a piece that you shaped in this um, field? Yeah, maybe, but yeah. let me, I, something you said made me think about, uh, a, a little selection in uh, Zorba the Greek, the novel by Cousin Zakis. And in that book, there's a, and it's in the movie too, a wonderful movie. Uh, if, you, if you've seen the movie, you remember Alan Bates plays a, a young writer and, and uh, Anthony Quinn plays Zorba. And there's a point in which Anthony Quinn as, as Zorba, his, his family, I, I don't remember exactly what happened, somebody's killed, it's a horrible, horrible event for his family and he turns to this writer and he says, what good is your art when it comes up against this terrible thing? And Alan Bates's character is of course silenced for a minute because the question is absolutely right. And all he can say is, in art, we learn that others have felt what we have felt, mm -hmm. and we're not alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well said. So um, we should be looking for uh, programs throughout the performing arts this year mm -hmm. that will have a tie to human rights, and sh should we expect that there'll be discussions um, given in conjunction with some of these 
pieces? Do you know whether they'll some be? Some will be very informal. Yeah. Some will be centered around it, and some it will just be a peripheral theme, mm -hmm. maybe mentioned in the program notes. Yeah. Yeah. Kelsey might have a, uh, a link to some of the um, other events that might have a tie-in to uh, discussion and panels and mm -hmm. seminars. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's always amazing to see how much is going on at the university that connects with this idea of human rights and social justice um, that we can connect to. And as the Center for Human Rights, we sort of try to, to watch for those and approach those people and say, have you thought about this connection? And it's always amazing to see um, how that exists. And mm -hmm. people don't always know. So we're doing similar things with the School of Music and the other divisions, um, the other schools and Division of Performing Arts as well. So yeah, yeah. that's great. And the Center for Human Rights has a new home in the College yes, of Law. We do. And so yes. moving forward with, uh, I, I know, a lot of new energy. And it's great. Yes, we're very excited. Yeah, it's great. Well, I would like to say thank you very much for opening our program. Alan McVeigh, John Manning, and Kelsey Kramer, thank you so much. And I wish you all kinds of uh, good fortune with uh, this SOAR project. And hopefully it won't just be this one year. Hopefully right. this kicks off something mm -hmm. that's much more permanent in all of our minds as we look to the future. Uh, so for just now, I would like to say thank you. And that's the end of the first portion of this series on the arts as vocabulary. We are going to have three more programs on this topic, so I hope you can join us for all of those. Uh, I'm Joan Kerr, and this is World Campus from International Programs at the University of Iowa. Thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you next time. Hello, I'm Joan Kerr, and this is World Canvas. Thank you for joining us tonight. This is the second program in a four-part series on the arts and human rights, the series we're calling The Arts as Vocabulary. We're coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the campus of the University of Iowa, a beautiful space, and we invite you to join us here as a member of the live audience on some future occasion. We'd like to thank our partners, the Pentecrest Museums, KRUI, and the Hawkeye Network for supporting the program. In this series, we're looking at the arts as critical communicators on issues of human rights and freedom. And we're discussing the power of the arts, whether the performing arts or the creative arts, to influence our understanding of the world around us and perhaps challenge us in our comfort areas. Our guests in part one of the series discussed a year-long initiative uh, at the University of Iowa that's called SOAR, Series on Arts and Rights, that will incorporate performance pieces that promote dialogue and critical thought, often on issues related to human rights. And in this segment, my guests and I are going to be focusing on performance and expression. And joining me here on stage are Charlotte Adams. Hi, Charlotte, who is an associate professor in the Department of Dance. And Mary Traxel is next to Charlotte. Hi, Mary. Uh, Mary is an associate professor in the Department of Rhetoric. And on the end, we have Jennifer Brown, an instructor in the English as a Second Language program here at the university. Thank you, Jennifer, for coming. So Charlotte, let me turn first to you and talk a little bit about dance as uh, performance and expression. You're a dancer, you're a choreographer, you're a teacher, you work with storytelling through dance and have for a long, long time telling your own stories and then observing what other choreographers and other dancers mm -hmm. do to transmit whatever thoughts they want to share, whatever messages they might want to put behind their, their work. Could you just start at the beginning and tell us how a dancer begins to think about communicating ideas? Well, it really begins with the body, you know, and the thing that's wonderful about dance is that we all, as humans, live in our bodies, and we're actually quite good at picking up information from bodies that oftentimes we're not even aware of. It may be more unconscious, you know, as I talk, I'm doing movements that probably have some type of meaning that help you pick up on the communication as well as the audience. 
And what we do is dance then is we look at it a little deeper. And um, I thought I could talk about it a little bit about like maybe the what, where, how of dance. Um, and the what, of course, is the body, the body that we all live in and does communicate many things. And in dance, then, also, we have um, the, the um, when it takes place. And that has to do with timing. So if I would, oh, if I do a movement like this, you'll probably get some kind of image or some idea from that. But if I do it like this, you get some, something different. And all I did was change the timing, really. I changed the force as well. But the speed and the force can communicate things. And so in a simplified way, that's some of the things we play with in dance. Um, also, so I mentioned the how again. So if I take a movement that you know, comes this way, you know, you'll get something different than if I do it like this. Yeah. So those, uh, those things are, are choreography tools. And the other thing is that we work with is space, like where we are in space. So I was thinking as we were sitting watching, that you know, you're the interviewer and we're being interviewed. But if I take my chair um, and I do this, you know, everybody will get a real different feel about what's going up on yeah. the stage here. Or if I come over to Mary and I sit like this, you know, and those all those things in dance and movement help to 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 form the language of dance. And um, of course. Complex dances involve much more than that, but on, um, that, that's where we begin, really, in the studio. Yeah. So if you wanted to tell a story that was a, uh, a story of um, displacement or, um, you know, uh, slavery, uh, terrible brutality somewhere, what are the tools you would employ to tell that story? Well, well there's many things, and many of them start, like, I personally like to start with the body. And um, you can start with, you know, gesture or, um, you know, or po posture and develop a movement language that seems to communicate whatever that may be. Um, if um, some, you know, horrible human rights issues uh, often take a real toll on the psyche and the body. And you can read that in someone's body as well. So we might, we might utilize that. Um, as a beginning point with the movement. And then um, if a narrative is kind of come about, the other thing that we do is think about a structure, like where um, in space we might place the main character and how the others do or do not interact with them. And that can be all through the physical body or how they touch them or how, um, how they don't look at them. All those things will communicate through dance. And then, of course, music is also another aspect often used in dance that can really help set the tone. And so what you get really, even if it's, whether it's narrative or if it's an abstract piece, you start to get layers of meaning that oftentimes I think good art really um, taps deeper into place even beyond words. Yeah. You know, and can, can hit you at a, at a powerful level. Mm -hmm. And so, as, as we've all uh, seen, and you just mentioned, there are some pieces that will have a story that seems um, somewhat easy to follow, perhaps, right. or, or the, the notes. And then there are other more abstract pieces where the choreographer may have something fairly specific in mind, but may uh, leave the interpretation almost entirely up to the audience, right. uh, other than maybe a title. Um, is, uh, how, how do you think that through when you're 
putting a piece together, you're naming it, you're working with your dancers. Um, is it important to you as the artist that every audience member get exactly the same thing out of it that you're trying to put into it when you're creating it? Well, I really work in a more uh, in a contemporary way, and usually non-narrative, but I have worked, so if I'm doing a narrative piece, I really want to help the audience come along with me, and I will give clear ways to get there. Um, a piece I did last year called Beyond Anatomy. It was important for me, for the audience, to be able to take that ride all the way through, even though, again, it was somewhat abstract, but there, were, there was more information. Mm -hmm. That was linear for me. Yeah. Um, right now, I'm working on a piece that um, has to do with um, falling and recovering, striving and getting back up again. And it's very abstract, and I'm really working with just the um, elements of movement there to, to relate that and also a videographer. And in that, the, I hope that, um, that the layers of meaning will come through and audiences can really relate to it and get, you know, take, what, take from it what they can. Like one dancer told me in my initial showing that it, it really almost made her feel sick to her stomach because of the video and then also the hard driving um, dancing and the, 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 um, the striving, the struggle. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't really even thought that. And I, so I think that that's the other beautiful thing about dance or abstract art can do that often yeah. too, where we respond to it on different levels mm -hmm. from our own experience. Mm -hmm. Well then, just one other thing quickly. Um, dance is, is obviously uh, a human reality in whatever culture. It seems mm -hmm. that people have movements that are uh, natural to their own own environments and things that we might not even necessarily think of as dance, but, but they are maybe ritual movements or whatever that means something to the people there. Absolutely. How much of that outside of our own U.S. culture do you bring into something you might create? You know, almost everything that I see, I think all artists do bring those into, in, into their work. Um, visual art really impacts the way I work oftentimes. Um, I, I love to use writing and writing tools with dancers and for myself too. Um, and then being, then the moment I'm exposed to a new form of dance and take it into my body, it's residing there as, and it can come out in the most surprising ways. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, yeah. and that's what's great about working with a variety of dancers as well because they bring their experience. Um, from different countries, from different um, yeah. backgrounds. From, yeah. you know. and do you take feedback from your dancers when you're, you've, you've got the main piece laid out, but you're refining it, you're working on it? If the dancers, I suppose if there's a movement they're having a bad time with, then you would try to address that. But, but in terms of the interpretation of something you're doing, um, do your dancers ever feel that they can give you that kind of feedback? Oh, yes. Um, you know, a newer way of working, or not so new anymore, but is really having the dancers as collaborative partners. And I will, you know, sometimes I'm in the studio and I actually am not really sure what I've created. And so I'll ask them, well, how did that feel? Um, is, is there another way we might do this to get at this thing that we're talking about? And I feel that they feel very willing to contribute to that and then often help me see so that I can step forward and, you know, yeah. and see what is it I really am doing or yeah. what we're all doing together. Yeah, yeah. 
No, that's great. And so some of the dance uh, performances this year will have a human rights theme to them Absolutely. by specific design. Right. Yeah. 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 Presently, um, just the beginning stages of a project um, involving water is something oh, I'm yeah. working on with yeah. uh, colleague Jennifer Kale. Yeah. But that's, that'll be a bit in the future, maybe right. the next year or so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. So that's Charlotte Adams. Thank you, Charlotte. And, and now I'd like to talk to Mary Traxel and Jennifer Brown a little bit about some projects you are working on and have been involved with for a very long time at the Oakdale Correctional Facility, part of the Department of Corrections here in Iowa. Um, it's, I think, a medical classification center, but uh, there are um, inside folks, I believe is the way we refer to them, and there are community members who cooperate on a community choir, and uh, you two lead writing classes for some of the uh, insiders at, uh, at Oakdale. So could we talk first about the choir? I know you've both been involved as community members uh, with the choir for many, many years. Could you tell us when it started, how it started, and, and why, really? Mary, I'll go to you first. I, I believe it's five years that the choir has been in existence. Um, it was started by Mary Cohen from um, the Department of Music and Education. And this has been a research interest of hers as well as a, a, you know, a human rights interest, um, bringing arts into prisons. Um, so Jen and I were both um, charter members of the IMCC choir. Um, I, I believe we call it the IMCC Community Choir. And it's composed of community members as well as inside singers. So we call ourselves outside singers and inside singers. Um, and we um, rehearse once a week. Um, we put on performances for other um, inmates um, as well as a separate performance for community members um, family members of the inside singers um, and the outside singers. Um, sometimes we have university people there, um, Iowa politicians. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. So, so the idea behind this is simply to bring uh, a coherent um, structure uh, of something artistic, something beyond the prison experience to the, to the lives of these inside singers? I think it is, in large part, community art. I mean, it is forming a community with an artistic project mm -hmm. and an artistic language that we use to communicate with one another. Um, I wasn't aware until I became a member of the choir how important the arts are in, inside of prisons. Um, because it really is a freedom issue um, because the arts provide them with a way of escape. Mm -hmm. um, I remember one time when we were re rehearsing a song that was written by one of the inside singers, and I was walking my dog through my neighborhood one morning, and I was singing, I was humming this song that um, had been written by somebody in prison, and my neighbor heard me and said, oh, that's a nice song. And I was thinking, you know, this guy is in prison, and yet, you know, the language of his heart is, is out in the world. And, and that has happened with, you know, people using music from the prison in performances, outside of the prison, wedding ceremonies, funerals. Wow, wow. And what has your experience been like, Jen, um, as part of the choir? Well, my first experience walking in 
originally I was not sure exactly how it was going to work. I had never been inside a prison before. And I walked in the door to the, the testing room, which is what we use for our practices, and I thought, huh, they're Iowans. <laughs> That's how we basically related through the entire five years mm -hmm. that we've been doing this. Just We are friends who meet once a week and do something together. Um, a couple of years ago, Mary Cohen introduced the term musicking uh, as the idea of creating music together. And that's exactly what we do. We, we create something as a part of a functional community that can, we build skill together. We, sometimes we work on individual skills. Sometimes we just attain them through practice and listening to each other. Uh, that's one of the uh, things that if you're not sure what your note is, you have two ears, one mouth, listen to your neighbors and try to blend and, and things like that. So I think the, the productivity uh, and the the creativity is an outlet for doing something that they can't do every day and they can't do by themselves. Being able to do it with both inside and outside singers uh, enables them to reach a level of expression that they would otherwise not be available. And what's the value to the two of you as community members, as outsiders? What, what does it do for you? It was tremendously eye-opening for me. Like Jen, I had never been in a prison before this. Um, and it, so my only knowledge of the prison population came through sensational stories and you know, TV yeah. dramas and, and that sort of thing. So it was an opportunity to sit next to people, to sing together, listen to our voices together. Um, Mary Cohen, from the very beginning, wanted there to be a writing component to the choir. And I got involved with that we would have weekly writing prompts, and then we would have an exchange. It was a way for people, um, for insiders and outsiders, to get to know each other a little bit better. We don't have a whole lot of time to talk when we're rehearsing. The women are all together in the alto section and in the soprano section. And, and so this was a way to sort of introduce us and help us get to know one another um, even better. Um, and it was from that that we developed the writing workshop as a separate, it's not really writing classes, it really is a workshop and, and like the choir, it involves community writers and inside writers who become audiences for one another's writing and we give each other feedback. And, mm -hmm. and any kind of writing is okay? Any kind goes um, and we've had a wide variety. Yes. We've had sermons, plays, um, advice short column. stories, many novels, an advice column, uh, a musical. <laughs> a musical. <laughs> Poetry. <laughs> a lot of songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what, what do the, uh, the inmates tell you, uh, the inside writers, what do they tell you this opportunity to write and be heard by other people um, means for them? What does it give them? Uh, they mentioned, or we asked them, what is this, you know, why do you keep coming back? basically, and they said that uh, the first thing was that they have dreams. Some of them have dreams to be in a creative uh, profession or a hobby when they get out, and this is a place where they can hone the skills for those or simply express whatever dream that they have. Uh, and it's also a place to be productive and positive when so much of their environment is negative, uh, and a place to unlearn Many of them were told that they were not talented, that they were not, um, their writing was bad, their English teachers 
told them, gave them Fs. Uh, but they're learning that they are capable of good writing um, and in a positive way. So I'm learning a lot of negative habits, replacing them with positive habits, um, again, in a, in a supportive setting. They're also learning to think critically about not only their own work, but also other people's work. We are, the format that we use is everybody has a couple of pages of whatever it is that they're bringing, and they read it, and then we go around the circle, first to the left and then to the right, um, and give feedback. And you know, when people first start it, they're usually, uh, I liked it, with that I'll pass, is a phrase that we hear a lot sometimes. But after they get into the rhythm of and they hear how the other inside guys respond as well, they start to bring unique perspectives. And it's, it's always great when somebody starts commenting for the first time. Yeah. And are some of the, the uh, insiders, they've been there for some period of time, or some of these people, folks you've worked with for a long, long time? Do you feel a friendship develops? Of course, yeah. Um, I think that um, you come to know people when you're sharing writing. Um, many of them are writing poetry um, in which they're trying to express, you know, very deep feelings about their situations, about their past, about their hopes for the future. And I think that um, there's a kind of intimacy and mutuality that develops in that kind of a, a community. Um, I, I also think that one of the benefits um, to the insiders as well as to us is the way imaginative writing allows you to practice empathy. Um, just this last week, we, had, we looked at um, a song that one of the inmates had written, and he was hearing a woman singer's voice, a particular woman singer that I wasn't familiar with, but the song was about, um, the setup was this woman talking to a, a woman friend about an abusive relationship. And I thought, what a remarkable move that was for this male inmate to imagine women talking together, you know, just a communication between women. So um, I think that, you know, it's a way of stretching yourself through the imagination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I suppose there isn't any direct dialogue about what a particular person was arrested for. This is just about who I am now and what my thoughts are now and... Yeah, yeah. it's uh, against the volunteering regulations, we can't have direct uh, exchange about uh, their criminal record or where we live or things like that. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of them also put their, kind of their story into a fictionalized format. So they'll write a, a fictional story about this other guy and put elements of their own life into it, which is uh, a time-honored method of immortalizing your experiences to put into a myth, basically. And I think that it's wonderful that they're discovering that themselves and they can put it to such good use. And I think uh, so we also contribute writing. And when we all put ourselves out there, there is a level of trust that is reached. And when they leave, it's kind of awful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, very bittersweet. Yeah. Because it's good that they're going on to, um, to treatment and to freedom. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Wow, well, I wish we could talk a little longer about all of this, but, but I want to say a big thank you to Charlotte Adams from the Department of Dance, Mary Traxel, thank you to you, and thank you, uh, Jen Brown, for sharing with us what you do, and so many other people do with the, uh, the Oakdale Insiders, and I understand that it is possible, if someone hearing this program is interested in getting involved, uh, it is possible to um, perhaps help teach or sing in the choir and make yourself known. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. There's, there's always a need for volunteers at the prison. Great, great. Well, thank you all so much. I appreciate it very much. Uh, you've been listening to World Canvas. This is the second program in a series of four programs on the theme, The Arts as Vocabulary. Thank you for joining us tonight. I'm Joan Kerr, and we'll see you next time. Hello, I'm Joan Kerr, and this is World Canvas. Thank you for joining us for tonight's program. You are listening to the third part of a four-part series on arts and human rights. We're calling the arts as vocabulary. So thank you for joining us for this program. We are coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the campus of the University of Iowa. And we want to say thank you first to our partners, the Pentecost Museums, the Hawkeye Network, and also KRUI Radio. We're discussing the power of the arts, whether the performing arts or the creative arts, to influence our understanding of the world around us, and maybe to challenge us a little bit in our comfort zones, particularly where human rights are concerned. Uh, a little earlier, we heard about a year-long initiative in the Division of Performing Arts that's a collaboration with the UI Center for Human Rights on human rights and the arts and the interaction between the two. Uh, in the second segment, we talked a little bit about performance and expression, exploring dance, communal music, and reflective writing. And in this program, we want to look at some of the ways in which human rights issues are addressed through literature, through visual communication, and through film. So joining me on stage are Zayar Lin, a Burmese poet and a member of the 2013 IWP, or International Writing Program, here at the University of Iowa. Thank you for coming, Zayar. Hello. And next to him is Ab Gratama, who is a professor in the School of Art and Art History. Hi, Ab. Thank Hello. you. And Nathan Platt is our third guest for this segment. He's an assistant professor in the School of Music. A pleasure to have you here, Nathan. Thanks. Thank you, Joe. You're welcome. The arts can help us, or maybe even force us, to see things we may not have been able to see or may think we don't want to have to be confronted with. Um, they can show us new ways to look at life's complexities. They can raise a call for freedom that neither politicians nor military rulers can silence. Uh, I'd like to begin the conversation with Zayar Lin, our poet just next to me here. As I mentioned, you are from Burma, from Myanmar, and um, you're living currently in Iowa City. And first of all, welcome. Yes, Glad to have you here. Thank you. Um, and you're the author of many, many poetry collections. I've translated many poets, Americans, East Europeans, Russians, Chinese. Mm -hmm. um, you also edit a quarterly called Poetry World. Mm -hmm. You're a teacher, very accomplished guy. And you live in a country that has had its share of political trouble. Yes, of course. Yeah. So could you just tell us a little bit about how that environment affects the writer you are? Well, um, our country, Burma, has gone through two successive military regimes which lasted for 50 years, started from 1962 to 1988, and then the next regime started from 1988 to 2011. So, you know, having uh, lived under those 50 years of uh, political repression and dictatorship, it has, um, it has really hurt our 
literature in many ways. As a poet, you know, what the regime, what those two regimes have done is to restrict our poetic language, to restrict our expressions, to restrict the words we use. Now, for instance, um, at one time, we were not allowed to use the phrase, the sun set, because the first uh, military dictator's name was Nei Win in Burmese, which means bright sun. So the sun must not set in poetry. Oh, my God. And then um, we were not allowed to use words like poverty or military. And when the Aung San Suu Kyi came onto the scene, we were not allowed to use the word rose in our poems because she always wore roses. And we were not allowed to use the word mother because, you know, a lot of uh, people in our country consider the Aung San Suu Kyi as the mother of democracy. So the word mother was banned. So coming through that kind of country, you know, when uh, uh, a word misused can put you in prison for 20 years, we had to self-censor ourselves. The next thing was when we want to have our uh, poems published, we would have to send our uh, manuscript to the editor and the editor would censor them again. And finally, the censor board would censor it. And if everything is okay, if there is no hint of um, danger to the regime, then it passes. If it is deemed that you know, one word or one line is quite dangerous to the regime, then uh, it is censored. Either you, know, either, uh, you have one line which is inked out, or you can have the whole page ripped out the newspaper. And that is lucky. If you're unlucky, you go to jail. So um, under that kind of um, um, dictatorship, we had to think of new ways to pass through that censor board. You know? And um, one of the ways we came up was using allusions. So you know, when you want to talk about the, the the cruelty of this military regime. We talked about Gaddafi, how bad he is, and what Gaddafi is doing to the Libyan, poor Libyans. And you know, when we want to talk about the way the Burmese army was um, uh, killing off the ethnic minorities, we used the illusion of the killing fields of Cambodia, of the Khmer Rouge. So that was one way we could get our message across. You know, not uh, saying things directly, but alluding to others. And then um, another way was to use irony. So instead of writing about the poverty of the country, we would write about our personal poverties. We would say, you know, oh, we are so um, useless because whereas other people can make themselves get rich, we are so useless, we are so stupid that we can't make ourselves uh, as wealthy as other people. It's just our fault. Okay. But then the rest of the uh, readers, people who know that you know, only a handful in our country are really rich, filthy rich, whereas the rest of us, we are just struggling every day on you know, whatever we have. So that, that was another way, using um, irony. And of course, as poetry, we use a lot of you know, um, uh, reading between the lines. And um, one thing I came up with was the use of a list. You know, because um, the mainstream poetry at that time, by, by that time of winning uh, 1990s, early 2000, um, it was very lyrical. It was a poem based on the poet's feeling, and there was this, this um, the poet's self in the center, and the whole poem was built around the self. 
what I did was I destroyed it. Instead of having this lyric form, I, I chose a, a list form in which you know, um, there is only just one word in each line so that it is a, like reading a list. But then you know, there is no coherence. There's no narrative there, and there's no feelings there. There's no self there. So the censor uh, board felt that you know this is not a poem. This is somebody playing with words. But within those lines, and you know, I slip in uh, anti-government stuff. And of course, people who read closely, they know they know that they see at once. So um, um, that was another way we tried to get across, get past the censorship board. But fortunately, the censorship board was abolished last year in August after 48 years and two weeks. <laughs> and so we are now free to write whatever we wish to. We are regaining uh, the little bit of um, um, freedom of expression that we got sometime in 1948 to 1950 after the independence. So now, we, now what's happening is since we never knew uh, freedom of expression, we don't know what to do with that freedom. Because we've never, we had, you know, we, all the time, throughout our lives, we always had to keep censoring ourselves, censoring our minds, you know. But now that we get, we are free to say whatever we want, we don't know what to say. <laughs> and that's the crisis we are facing now. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. That's very well spoken, absolutely. <laughs> well, let me just uh, pass down the line here to uh, our next guest, Ab Gradama. So you are in the area of visual communication. You teach yes. in the art and art history right. uh, department. And um, it, just to, to get us all on the same page, what do you mean by the term visual communication? Now, I called Massimo Vignelli, the yeah. designer. Yeah. Well, visual graphic design, let me put it that way, more specifically maybe, is giving meaningful visual form to information. Mm -hmm. And that through what? My journey yeah. became more and more important to me. Tell us about your journey a little bit. You're originally from the Netherlands. From the Netherlands. I had a studio with a partner and did a lot of uh, design work for theaters, music, uh, even a number of uh, national postage stamps. So we were doing well. I was always watching on the TV uh, documentaries and programs for volunteers working in Africa specifically. I always wanted to see elephants live, not in the zoo. That's one. Secondly, all the volunteers were always uh, carpenters, doctors, engineers, irrigation specialists, agronomists, never a graphic designer. But then they asked me to go to Ghana and set up a visual communication unit as part of a large international uh, uh, what is it, uh, agricultural yeah. project. I did that, and with my Ghanaians' counterparts, and people, I trained people in graphic design and photography and so forth. And we did, we made some designs on the request from agronomists for the agricultural program for irrigation. And we did, or I, I told them to do the same things as I was always doing in the Netherlands. You could get away with anything. <laughs> and there, in Ghana, not at all. So, obviously there is literacy and a lack of literacy. 85% of the people around there were illiterate, verbally. 
And then I began to discover there's another kind of literacy, which is visual literacy. If we compare a formal education, like we all had, with books and TV and magazines and so forth, none of that was there up in the north in Ghana. And I began to investigate uh, and got more and more and more interested in that other side of graphic design as a tool for what? Social, social marketing, yeah. you know? Advancing uh, the health, helping to health, food, shelter for the people in the communities. So that really got me and it changed my life because in Navrongo, Ghana, I met Professor Ascroft here from the university who was sent out by FAO and started working together. And he said at some point, well, if you're interested, after you've gone back to the Netherlands, give me a call. <laughs> and after being two years back in the Netherlands, I did. And he said, when are you coming? Mm. <laughs> and my wife and I went and looked around and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to study when I'm 40 years old. <laughs> I did. And through that study and through the connection with Joe Ascroft, uh, UNICEF asked me to come to Nigeria. And there I worked with an audience member there, Alan Brody, and worked on campaigns for immunization and for oral rehydration and uh, conducted workshops working with Nigerians and design stuff for use of health extension people and nurses and clinics and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I took that, well, no, I have that now mm -hmm. with me. Mm -hmm. And teaching graphic design here at the School of Art, I make that part of it yeah. um, because I think it's very important. And as class projects, for instance, with the graduate students, at the moment we are developing some sort of campaign for uh, Doctors Without Borders. Oh, yeah. Awareness, creation of awareness and understanding of what they're doing. Yeah. Um, we, earlier we made posters for Amnesty International, not directly, but, mm -hmm. you know, fictitiously. Mm -hmm. um, I was involved, we were involved, students and I, with uh, Paris Academy de Beaux-Arts, uh, Royal Academy of Design in The Hague, and us in, in creating disaster pictograms, we called them, to be used in those refugee places where people from different traditions, cultures, language, like, are all sitting there. And so we made pictograms purely visual, without words, where the, uh, the health clinic was, where to get their food, where, to, where the bathroom, and so forth, and so forth. So, and they were all assembled and selected, sifted through, and a whole series was done and exposed, uh, exhibited, I should mm -hmm. say, and uh, got a lot of press, and I, now I don't know what happened to them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, th that really interests me. And personally, I worked with, as you know, uh, uh, Humanity Iowa mm -hmm. and um, for the American uh, Friends Service Committee. Yeah. I did with a partner a number of posters. Mm -hmm. No human being is illegal. And yes. um, uh, the last one was uh, Keep the Flame Alive. Mm -hmm. And I, we did a 
image of Lady Liberty with the torch, but then it was rain on it, so ah, the darkened yeah. sky. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Yeah. What else? I could talk for hours, but no. you you keep but me on. A, uh, okay. No, <laughs> but it, but it, it sounds like it's a good blend, a very good blend of your own personal passions and something that you think is actually right. Uh, right. helping us communicate across right. cultures, across right. lines. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, I want to uh, just uh, slip over to you now, Nathan, if I may. Um, and I, I know that all of us, I'm sure everyone here, uh, watches films, uh, has heard film scores, has been impressed or impacted in some way by some things we've heard in films. And of course, in particular relationship to human rights here, mm -hmm. um, I thought I could ask you to tell us a little bit about how music in films is used to tell messages, some that many of us would think were positive and uplifting mm -hmm. and so on, and sometimes not such a good message. Sure. Um, well, yes, and so y y you mentioned that most of us have seen films and, and we're attracted to it for a variety of different reasons. I think one of the things that is compelling about film is it's often a, an immersive experience of some kind, and so we're obviously you know, getting the visuals and we're, we're hearing sometimes spatial, you know, in a stereo-like setting, um, and uh, we get this kind of experience uh, in other, uh, in other forms, opera, theater, dance, uh, we, it's possible for us to sort of have that um, moment where we're just sort of overwhelmed by the, the, the variety of messages that are coming to, coming to us simultaneously. Um, the thing that is sort of exciting um, and, and you could say p potentially dangerous about film is it is easily replicable and, and can be, and, and um, Thousands of prints can be run off, they can be distributed around the world, and now in our digital age, when you can post a cat video to YouTube and it can be around the world in minutes, um, we're almost desensitized to that, but that, that, is, a, that is a tremendous, remarkable um, facet of, of the medium. And, uh, and so it has been used um, for good and for ill, and, and uh, discussion of censorship is certainly key when it comes to discussions of film, because when you think of... Um, when, when sort of the greatest numbers of people were going to movie theaters to see film um, in the 30s and 40s before, um, b before the competition of television and, 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 and some other form, formats. Um, you also have these totalitarian regimes. You have, uh, you have the, the Hitler and the Nazis and Joseph Goebbels who all had avid, actually quite genuine, interest and love for film. Um, and also were, were in some ways had, a, had an especially keen appreciation for what it could do in terms of swaying people to, 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 to a particular um, idea or message. And, uh, and so th there, there's kind of that, that sort of dark side of it that I think is important and I think it still um, uh, influences the way people make films now, which is on the one hand the, this sort of capability to show people images from around the world um, and, and, and craft a narrative and make people aware of situations that they would not otherwise be aware of, but there's also this sort of, th this fear that it could also be manip manipulative in some, in some kind of way. And, um, and, I, and I also don't, I wouldn't want to sort of suggest that it's either propaganda or it's bearing witness. Oftentimes these two are sort of holding hands in uncomfortable um, and, and sometimes very interesting ways. Um, I think, uh, recent example of some films that uh, the director, uh, Laura Poitras, has made, um, uh, My Country, My Country, which is about um, uh, the occupation of Iraq, and particularly the first free elections um, held in Iraq after the American occupation, and also The Oath, which is, which is about Guantanamo Bay. I mean, she has picked really um, politically uh, uh, 
um, uh, in potentially incendiary topics. And she's trying to sort of, um, for an, a primarily an American audience, but certainly not exclusively American audience, have people think about these issues in ways that we don't get through the newspapers and through, the, and through sort of television journalistic media. And so mm -hmm. one of the things that she does is she focuses on, on, on individuals in, in, the, in the one um, about Iraq. It is about a, a particular Sunni doctor who's running for a civil uh, municipal office. Um, it's about his family. There are no, there's no voiceover narration. Um, her sort of contribution to it is sort of very self-effacing. We really feel like we're just sort of watching them in the day-to-day -day sort of what, you know, what is this experience like living in Baghdad what, while we're sort of preparing for this, for this particular election and, and not, and, and just things as simple as, as not having power um, and having to, to light the kitchen with kerosene lamps and things that we don't necessarily think about. Similarly with the Guantanamo Bay, um, it, it's, uh, it's told sort of through the, through the perspective of somebody who, uh, had been Osama bin Laden's uh, bodyguard and had uh, since then, um, uh, well, now he was raising a family and he was still had very many, uh, he was still, the, th the thing that's so fascinating about the oath is he's, he's such a complicated individual um, and, the, and still is sort of, has certain sort of jihadist tendencies and, and beliefs. On the other hand, he has an adorable son and he's most concerned about his family and their safety and their health and, and he is sort of appalled by the, the, the what has happened with September 11th and what has happened in the aftermath of that. And so, again, her sort of take on that is to sort of step aside and let the visuals do that. And, and, and that is a, a means of communication that we could say leaves more space for the, the imagination of the viewer to sort of interact and come away with their own conclusions. Mm -hmm. We could also say that by her sort of holding back, she's also being even more sort of careful on how she's stitching it together because we are not hearing her voice. We're not sort of seeing necessarily in a sort of explicit way how she's thinking about it. But, yeah, please. You said something very interesting, <laughs> that the audience can make up its own mind mm -hmm. and interpret yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, in graphic design, again, what you're trying to accomplish is to inform people, to educate people, mm -hmm. to create awareness, understanding of issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, especially in, in uh, in, in the situations in, in Nigeria and Lesotho and Suriname, where I was, you, you can't get away with that. Mm -hmm. People should not be interpreting things in a wrong manner. You have mm -hmm. to make sure they understand exactly yeah. what you mean. Yeah. And if they don't, then you go back to the, to the drafting table mm -hmm. and you do uh, well, group discussions, you find out and you yeah. go again and you go on, until you're sure people understand exactly what this is. Yes. Because the objective is, of course, that they will hopefully adopt a practice like going to the clinic to have yeah. their kids immunized. Sure. If they don't understand it, yeah. or they misunderstand it, yeah. you haven't done enough, yeah. or you didn't do it right. So, mm -hmm. yes. yes. And, and self-expression in art, yes, absolutely. And, and that we can... Uh, on a personal basis, interpret things differently. I may, I may understand a poem by you differently than you perhaps intended to, but okay, I do with that what, what I feel like. Um, but, you know, the yeah. other side yeah. 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 is, and, and, and if you just, sorry, see, you can, ah. yeah. 
often graphic design is seen as not really art. It's not fine art. Mm -hmm. I think Talking it is art. Talking <laughs> about this misinterpretation, uh, I had one poem censored. Actually, it was um, a poem dedicated to um, Valentine's Day. And you know, in that poem, there were lots of roses. But it, so, it happened that you know, um, the Aung San Suu Kyi was going to give a speech somewhere on that particular day. So the censorship thought that I was, you know, I had written a poem of dedication to the lady, so it was, it was uh, censored. So you know, this um, interpretation can be, it can go in different ways. I, I wish we had so much more time. I apologize for breaking this good conversation off, but um, uh, we'll move on to our next segment and then follow up. But I do want to say thank you, Zayar Lin. Um, it's so you. nice to have you here from Burma, and good luck with your work and with the future of your country. And uh, uh, so good to see you, Abgradama, from Graphic Design in the Art Department, and from School of Music, Nathan Platt. Thank you so much. Much, much to talk about. And uh, we hope to have you all here again. Um, I'm Joan Kerr. This is World Canvas. You've been listening to the third part in a four-part series on the arts as vocabulary. And we're coming to you from Iowa City in the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum. We hope you'll join us next time. Thank you so much, and good night. Hello, I'm Joan Kerr, and this is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. Good to have you with us. This is the fourth program in a four-part series called The Arts as Vocabulary, and we have some wonderful guests tonight who are going to talk a little bit about arts and human rights, and we'll get to them in just one second. But first, I want to say thank you to our partners for this program, the Pentecost Museums, the Hawkeye Network, and KRUI Radio. We're coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum in Iowa City on the central campus, and you're invited to join us anytime you're interested in coming to see one of these programs done live. On tonight's program, we're going to be exploring ways in which the arts, both performing arts and creative arts, provide a vocabulary for self-expression, communication, and education in times of conflict, in periods of conscious reconciliation, and when trying to make sense out of a troubled past. In previous episodes, our guests have discussed a year-long initiative at the University of Iowa called SOAR, Series on Arts and Rights. And um, we've also discussed performance and expression by exploring dance, communal music, and reflective writing. Uh, in the third segment, we looked at some of the ways in which human rights issues are addressed through literature, visual communication, and film. And our particular focus in this section is the arts as an actor on the world stage. Joining me, just to my left, are Jovana Davidovich, assistant professor here at the University of Iowa in uh, the Department of Philosophy. And next to her is Jim Leach, former US congressman and chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities, also a visiting law professor and UI chair in public affairs. Or I should perhaps say, now visiting law professor and UI chair in public affairs. Great to have you here, Jim, Good thanks. Thank you. So, uh, as you know, we're discussing arts and human rights, and it seems to me that the arts can be seen as a very active player in, um, in politics, in um, cultural transfer around the world, and so on, um, but particularly important perhaps in times where either there's a difficult past people are trying to move on from, or where uh, conflict is, is currently an issue. It seems to me there are plays that are written, there's music that's done, there are protests that involve various kinds of artistic uh, expression. And I know that you kind of study this area uh, in your work in philosophy, Jovana. Could you just tell us how you approach this topic? 
So yeah, I mean, one of the one of the sort of essential elements of transitional justice, so justice that deals with going from a state of conflict to a state of peace, um, has really to do with restorative justice and reconciliation, so trying to somehow reach some sort of sustainable peace, right? Um, and a, a big part of that is restoring people's self-respect, uh, allowing victims to be heard, uh, and building up a narrative, and a particular type of a narrative. Um, and we can commonly think of sort of a narrative that's built up in a legal system where we're really interested in facts and trying to establish a case. And then there's a narrative that's built as a part of a reconciliation or a restorative process. And that's a narrative that has so many more functions and forms. That's a narrative that has to do with closure for the victims. It has to do with uh, portraying to the lesser perpetrators, for example, um, the, the horrors they have committed in an attempt to then um, Re, um, uh, reintroduce them into the society. Um, it has a, a feature of just establishing a, a historical record as well that's separate from the legal record, right? That's much more richer. And when we do that, it seems uh, pretty essential. And, and just as a matter of fact, uh, people turn to arts, people turn to music, people turn to film, people to, to turn to plays, to poetry, of course. Um, and I mean, we can come up with you know hundreds of examples where this where this is. Uh, takes place. And I think a big part of the reason for that is because arts is a great translator. Um, so in that way, we don't need to have you know, every single victim tell their story. We can have you know, a story told that in many ways translates all of our experiences. Um, and you know, without art, that would be an extremely difficult thing to do. So while uh, I, for one, find uh, you know, legal remedies really important for traditional process, um, we will never reach sustainable peace uh, after conflict without the restorative process and without the reconciliatory process. And both of those um, just depend on, necessarily depend on, uh, various forms of expression and, of course, arts, all of these, all of these forms of expressing yourself. Mm -hmm. well, so can you give an example from recent history of, uh, of uh, an occasion where collecting the narratives um, has really made a difference? Well, I mean, uh, you can think of either collecting the narratives through a sort of a truth and reconciliation process, uh, and in that sense, you can think of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But then you can also think about, and this is definitely not recent, but you can think of expressions of horror of war. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the first thing that came to mind, which is not recent at all, but it's you know Picasso's Guernica, right? Uh, I mean, uh, that's 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 universal language, right? And as as cliche as that may sound, you know, art is as a universal language. That is universal language, mm -hmm. and allows many of us not only in different societies but now through history to understand uh, and um, feel somehow related to, to empathize with yeah. the Spanish Civil War, right? Um, or another form of the, you know, discussing the same exact war is Neruda wrote a couple of pieces of poetry that express the horror, express the horror of the Spanish Civil War. Um, and so those are two great examples, I think, of in this one case poetry, in the other case uh, visual art, that are trying to attempt to translate, to tell us mm -hmm. something about what happened in the Spanish Civil War. And you know, I'm sure that we have students on campus that might not have the history, but might be able to understand in a meaningful way yeah. some of the elements of that. Mm -hmm. So it really is about education, in a way. It is absolutely mm -hmm. about education. I mean, if you think about, if you think about human rights implementation, 
Uh, we always think about things like coercion and intervention and sanctions, but that is, both as a matter of fact and as a matter of normativity, something that we should turn to very rarely. In fact, we have many, many other forms of implementation of human rights. We have domestic contestation and engagement. We have external adaptation, where you know, the country next to you changes their behavior. We have assistance. We have inducement, diplomatic or economic. Um, and all of these essentially depend on education. But this is not the sort of education that's going to take place uh, in, in, a, in a college environment, in part because who you're trying to educate is not, you know, there's not people who are always in a college environment. So this education needs to be swift. It needs to be broad. And it needs to be sort of education that motivates people to do something, right? And I mean, what a better way than, you know, to see a movie. I mean, I, I can't even think of how many people I know who have changed their uh, actions one way or another after watching some sort of documentary on a particular issue that was moving yeah. to them yeah. or listening to, you know, U2's Sunday Bloody Sunday, right, or something yeah. like that, right? Um, so this sort of education that is essential for enforcement and implementation of human rights is really sort of an education that lends itself very well to the art forms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Giovanna. Um, Jim, you have spent a large part of your life as an elected official, and then these last few years you've been running a really important agency, the National Endowment for the Humanities. And I know that throughout your whole career, you have had a strong interest in and belief in cultural diplomacy, the sharing of art between um, uh, countries. I know that you've been a strong supporter of the International Writing Program. Just because of this immersion, writers from all around the world have in our community for a period of time, which allows us the opportunity to get to know these writers and their circumstances. Um, tell us a little bit about how you feel the arts can play and do play a role in human rights around the world. Well, they're extraordinarily powerful. Uh, culture is larger than politics. In fact, politics is usually the surface, and to understand the surface, you have to understand the depths below, which are virtually all cultural. Uh, now, culture is more than the arts, but the arts are a fundamental part of it. Uh, Einstein once said that uh, the imagination was more important than knowledge. And so how do you teach the imagination? And really you don't say imagination is this. I mean, there, the, you, you get it by osmosis. And the great osmosis is, is really, uh, more than anything, the arts. Uh, in terms of art appreciation, art making, uh, really kind of stimulate the imagination, and, and they're also great reflections of freedom of the mind. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, uh, what is the tie to citizenship? Uh, the judgments of societies. And uh, it's a, a really integral uh, tie, because if a people internally can respect the various cultures within a society, they can work together better. A people externally if you can respect another culture, uh, you have a much higher uh, percentage chance that you can resolve inevitable differences easier. And, and, and let's say you have a conflict with another society. Uh, if you can respect aspects of the culture that are positive, it's a lot easier to come together afterwards. Now, if you take America, uh, in the 20th century, we were confronted with two extraordinarily profound ideologies of hate, communism and fascism. And how do you make contrast as a people? I mean, what, what's, if you take fascism uh, and you take a, a, a book like Mein Kampf, it, it's gotta be understood. 
You contrast this with, let's say, paintings by George Gross, who caricatured uh, uh, Nazi actions. Uh, which is more powerful? Uh, if you take communism, I mean, you've got the Communist Manifesto, but uh, which is a greater reflection of, of freedom, the Communist Manifesto or jazz or abstract expressionism? Uh, which reflect a people in a, in, a, in a greater way. Now, if you take America and the world today, we have political actions that not everybody's agreed with. We've had political actors that not everyone has agreed with. But if, if you have a society that can be respected, if you have a culture that can be respected, politics changes. Political leaders come and go. Uh, and culture is, is a little more stable. I mean, it, it changes slowly or there are periods of more rapid change. We're in a period in world history that maybe it's hallmarked by change and its acceleration. But if you have a cultural opinion that, that works, uh, you're gonna have a people that can work together and you're gonna have an international society that can intermix in, in a likelier, more constructive way. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, Americans uh, do you think we have a strong understanding of uh, human rights, of, of human rights issues around the world? Well, it's, it's a mixed bag. Uh, uh, we stand for individual rights. That's what the Declaration of Independence is all about. We are the first society that was created under uh, what in effect are uh, a philosophy of rights of the individual. Now, we didn't define the individual initially very well. We talked about uh, uh, rights that belong to uh, property-owning males, and so it took a while to include females. Uh, we had rights that applied to people of a single skin color, and it took a while to expand that. Uh, but basically, we're an individual rights-oriented society, and sometimes we have to uh, be clear that we reflect this in our own actions, uh, but if we kind of intrude in other societies, it there are periods that it can be very helpful, and there are also periods that can be counterproductive, and so you have to have judgments that apply in how you go about it. Uh, uh, for example, uh, we have a debate right now in the concept of American exceptionalism, and I think all Americans understand that there are exceptional aspects of our history and values. Uh, by the same token, every society has exceptional elements, and. What does exceptionalism mean? Does it mean we can ignore international law and hope that others uh, follow it? Or does it mean that we uh, will try to be a, a, a barometer of the best values that we conceivably can? And so we have to be uh, cautious about what things mean as well as the fact that they implicitly to some degree exist. Uh, but now as far as Americans and human rights, uh, uh, we still have problems of our own. And uh, human rights are, are partly about the aspect of rights, but they're also about simple respect of one individual towards another. And, and here, uh, let, me, let me talk about the power of literature for a moment. I mean, there's a hackneyed phrase about uh, one should learn to live in the shoes of someone else. And as hackneyed as it is, it's a very profound thought. What is the best way to, to, to live in someone else's shoes? Certainly one can travel and live in another culture, but not many people can do that. Uh, certainly history is important to know, but if you think about a novel, 
And let's say it's a novel about another society. Well, you put your shoes in the protagonist. I mean, and it, 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 a novel becomes a travelogue. It also becomes uh, a study of human nature and the human condition. Uh, and what is more powerful, if you take in American history, uh, we had one novel of seminal importance in the 19th century, uh, matched by none. Uh, and uh, we had a movement of what was called abolitionism, which means ending slavery based on principles. Uh, and people advocated abolition. But nothing was more effective than a novel by a four foot 11 inch woman named Harriet Beecher Stowe who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it was all about putting oneself in somebody else's shoes. And in, I think it was 1862, uh, she was invited to the White House by this very tall president. And Abraham Lincoln greeted her at the door, reportedly with the comment, so, you are the little lady that started this great war. <laughs> I mean, what an extraordinary thought. This was a novel that affected history. Uh, and frankly, the abolitionist uh, is symbolized by uh, spirits that she generated led Lincoln as much as he led the abolitionist. In fact, possibly more so. Uh, literature is just powerful, as are visual images. And today, uh, Yvonne mentioned movies. I mean, movies are a form of art that uh, talk about the human condition. Uh, they're also about action, and they're kind of uh, novels in color. Uh, and they are powerful. Yeah. When you speak to your students in philosophy department um, about issues related to, uh, well, you have to tell me how you would address something like human rights within um, your philosophy classes, but I, I know that you work on uh, well, actually, conflict. Actually, philosophy of human rights. Okay. So, <laughs> so um, you're, you're speaking to your group of students for the first time, and you try to introduce this concept to them. How do you do that? Well, I mean, that's exactly what philosophy of human rights does. I mean, we spend the whole semester trying to figure out what human rights are. Yeah. Uh, so what I do the first class and what I do every single class after that is explain why that matters so mm -hmm. much. Because we throw around the notion of human rights left and right, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, there's certain things we know about human rights that are very important, things like that they have some sort of an oomph, you know? They lead us to think that we have certain obligations. Mm -hmm. uh, we as individuals, we as a society, we as a state, and we as an international community. Um, but the interesting question is why? And when we answer the question of how come we have those human rights, we also need to answer the question of what gets on the list. I mean, not everything gets on the list. There are things that are rights which are not properly speaking human rights yeah. uh, and then don't necessarily care that's, carry that sort of a oomph, um, that sort of normative power, as we like to say. So then the project of philosophy of human rights is trying to figure out exactly what human rights are, what gets on the list, how come they lead us to feel like we have, rightly lead us to feel like we have certain obligations to discharge, obligations towards our fellow citizens and people in other countries. Right. And that's exactly what we do. Uh, we do that and we study things like children's rights and women's yeah. rights and uh, right to basic necessities and all these individual rights, but only after we have answered or attempted to answer mm -hmm. uh, the question of what, in fact, are human rights. Yeah. Well, if we, if we think of um, uh, human rights uh, in regard to Syria now, obviously a big national debate on what should be done. Uh, many people in the country feel something should be done, but an argument about whether some sort of 
physical intervention is the thing to do or some other kind of sanction being applied. Um, so when we decide that there's a human rights violation or there appears to be something terrible going on and there's a, there's a national mood to do something, mm -hmm. this is, of course, when our elected officials uh, have to figure out how to speak for us and to make a decision. And, and I know that you have faced decisions like that when you've been in Congress. And in fact, you were on another program some years ago just after voting against the, um, the war resolution um, before the Iraq war. And, um, we seem to be in sort of a paralyzed state in many respects now in uh, national um, the political life. Um, how do you, how do you how would you imagine that your former colleagues, as congressmen and senators, are thinking through this whole question of what we as Americans uh, need to do in regard to a situation like the one happening now in Syria? Well, I think there's consensus that a horrific act has occurred. Uh, there's also an increasing recognition that one can do counterproductive things. Uh, and uh, one aspect of international relations relates to the rule of law and how it should be perceived. And we do have conventions about chemical weapons, and so that's a serious uh, likely violation that's occurred by one, what's well, a certain violation that's occurred by one side or the other, mm -hmm. most probably the government of Syria. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, if you think about what do we do, uh, there is reasonable consensus that America doesn't want to get involved in another land warfare. And then there is the question, do you get involved in a uh, uh, quote, surgical strike that isn't too much or too little. That's really hard to define, and it's also very hard to uh, believe it would be productive, uh, in my judgment. Now, other people feel otherwise, and clearly it was put on the table, and just as clearly we watched a president of the United States who put it on the table uh, reflect certain self-doubt. Uh, and we've had are now in this unusual situation that a Russian leader who has been less than helpful in many aspects of international affairs uh, has set forth uh, an approach uh, that is very helpful to cause the United States to reconsider. And I personally uh, think it's a reconsideration that was overdue. Uh, and now we have news uh, uh, that possibly it's going to be followed with uh, uh, some progress in the country of Iran, which would be helpful. Uh, but uh, these are all great questions, which only time will evolve to, to allow a, a, a grander look at history. But I personally would be very doubtful of intervention at this time. Jovena, uh, you know, what is your background before you uh, came to our philosophy department here? Were you? Uh, well, I was a bit of a nomad. I'm originally from Yugoslavia. Uh -huh. uh, I've lived here for about 15 years, lived in mm -hmm. Australia for a while, so it's a bit of a yeah. nomad all over the place. But I do come, I mean, my, my, my interest partly comes from the fact that I came from Yugoslavia, yeah. which struggled with all these issues and humanitarian interventions and yeah. war and all of that yeah. over the years. And you were there during the time of yep. the... Uh, Part yeah. of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it shaped your thinking in many Absolutely. ways. Absolutely. Well, it shaped my interest in this. Yeah. Uh, I think it has not shaped my thinking. Um, it has shaped the topics I take up, mm -hmm. not the way I approach them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So are, in a way, are the arts the last best hope 
for us to understand history that's long past or things that are happening to us now? Arts and philosophy. Arts and philosophy. <laughs> wondrous hope, whether yeah. the last is, is open to question. Yeah, okay, there you go. Well, gosh, thank you both so much for talking with us this afternoon, and I really appreciate it. Jovana Davidovich and Jim Leach, thank, thank you, you very much. And, uh, and that's the end of this series on the artist vocabulary. This is World Canvas. I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you so much for being with us for this series, and we hope you'll join us next time when the topic will be the rise of Chinese public opinion. So thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Good night. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great to see you as always.